So about 500 years ago, the Protestant Reformation occurred in Europe when a monk, an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther was preaching through, teaching through the book of Romans. And he came to the phrase in Romans chapter one that said that now the righteousness of God has been revealed from heaven, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And Luther was a conscientious priest. A con- you know what I mean by conscientious, right? He, tried, he, he really, really wanted to do well. There, there are certain personality profiles that really want to do things the right way. And then there's other personality profiles like me that have a tendency to say, what's the point? Give me the big picture. I don't care about the details. Give me the big picture. I don't care about the law or the rule. I want to know why the rule's there, and I'll kind of try to fulfill the spirit of the law. Luther tried to fulfill the letter of the law. And because he tried to fulfill the letter of the law, he constantly battled the feeling, not the feeling, the awareness of his imperfections. And I've talked about this before in here, but there was a day when he suddenly realized that the righteousness by faith that Romans 1.18 was talking about was not your faith being good enough to be considered righteous, but rather that God was giving you righteousness if you just trust Jesus. And this, this thing landed on Martin Luther, and it was like a bomb went off through him all over Europe. Once people understood that they don't have to earn salvation, the system of the church that was allied with political power fell apart and society fragmented. And you go, what? You mean a dude read the Bible, came to an understanding of one verse, and that one verse became a doorway into a whole understanding, and then his understanding transferred to social revolution? Yes. Because we live out of what we believe is real, don't we? If you grew up 500 years ago in in medieval Europe, you grew up knowing who you were, you grew up knowing how the world worked, you grew up knowing what was real. Life is real, God is real, Jesus is Lord, life is hard, there's a hierarchy and a structure, the government leaders are in charge of the body, the church leaders are in charge of the soul, and things work a certain way. You didn't have to wake up in the morning and figure out what was real. It was handed to you. I don't know if you've ever thought about the burden of the modern world. The burden of the modern world. That every single one of us lives in a radically destabilized smorgasbord, a buffet of options with everyone vying for your money, for your attention for your allegiance, and everyone telling you what is real and what is true, telling you what kind of life is blessed and good, telling you how to get there and telling you that if you'll follow their system, it'll work. And all you gotta do is sign up for their class, buy it, three easy payments, 1995, and your life will go from stink to amazing, and it'll do it in record time. Look, here's our testimonials of the people who've done it. It'll work for you. Whether we're talking about skincare, your marriage, or your finances, or your faith. Three easy payments, my system works flawlessly. Your wage, yeah, 
Yeah, you've, you, everything you've heard is wrong. Doctors in Seaford are infuriated by this one simple trick. They don't want you to know. But if you grew up 500 years ago, you might not have had access to the grace of God in the sense of a full awareness of, I'm in. I trusted Jesus and I'm in. I trusted Jesus and I have access to the Father. I trusted Jesus and I'm counted righteous. I trusted Jesus and his Holy Spirit is here. You might not have had that kernel of insight, but there was something to be said about you not having to deal with the burden on your own of grabbing a Bible in your hand and having to wade through a universe of endless possibilities and you yourself have to come up with truth. I remember that, and I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm vaguely Protestant. Yeah, I'm vaguely Protestant. I think Protestantism has lots of problems. Lots of problems. Here's a major problem with Protestant. Well, okay, I'm getting a little off track. I'll come back to that. There's something wonderful about Protestantism. It's the insight that nothing in the Christian life has anything to do with earning. You with me? That everything in the Christian life has to do with Jesus' gifts to you. Are you with me? But when we define grace in the Protestant church, we're so allergic to earning that we've become allergic to obedience. So I only say I'm vaguely Protestant because I think the Catholic church's system of earning and the Protestant church of doing nothing are both wrong. You want to, should I unpack that more? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus is your model for life? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus could do what he did without the Father? No. So everything Jesus did, did he do it as a full human? When he was little, did he have to learn how to read? To know who God was, did he have to study the Torah, the Bible? To figure out his calling, did he have to find that calling in the pages of sacred scripture? He had to find himself in the pages of sacred scripture. To keep, to keep his soul in union with the Father, did he take much time alone with the Father in prayer? Did he teach his disciples how to pray like he prayed? Did he teach his disciples how to live like he lived? Did he actually believe they could do it? Did he think they could do it without the grace? So I think we're onto something here, aren't we? What is grace? Unmerited favor. But that's putting the word in the definition, isn't it? Grace is favor. Grace is unmerited, but the, but the word grace means unmerited. So it's like if I said, what did you get me for Christmas? And you said, a gift. And I said, what kind of gift? And you said, an unmerited gift. And I said, all gifts are unmerited, silly. I want to know what you got me. You can't define a word by using it. We do. So what is grace then? Of course it's unmerited. But what is grace? We get forgiveness by grace. There we go. Working it. Grace is the power of God that enables the, the will of God to manifest on earth. 
Grace is the power of God that enables the will of God to manifest, I would say it this way, in your life. Now, Protestants, God bless us, we're right that nothing in this life is earned. We're absolutely right about that. But we're wrong that the grace that we don't earn, that, we, that it's not active. This is dead horse beating today. I'm beating a dead horse. I hope so. I hope it's dead. If it's not, we're going to beat it till it's dead. If you think grace is just you, is just God eliminating the punishments, and that's it, that's the end of it, you won't have transformation in your life and you won't have a joyful Christian life. You will not have the life you were created to live. Because you were created to fulfill your calling on the earth. Which means it's an active life. That to follow Jesus is to enter into strict training. And that the, and that the grace of God is not just wiping the slate clean and then there's nothing left to do. But the grace of God is the fuel that empowers the fellowship with God, the relationship with God, to walk in obedience to the teachings of Jesus. Every important teacher that's ever come that, we, that humanity has said, wow, this guy's got insight, we should, we should really listen to them, has had to answer some fundamental questions. And one of the fundamental questions that every important teacher has had to answer is, what is true? What is real? What is real? What is real? Remember how I started? I said, when you grew up 500 years ago, you didn't have much grace, but you knew what was real. Now, we don't know what the heck's real, but we know there's grace. We're not sure what's real. We're not sure who to trust. We don't really know how life works best. We're not sure if we're able to follow Jesus. We don't really think the teachings of Jesus can be followed. We're not even sure what constitutes a good life, but we know we're under grace. I think it's time for another reformation. A reformation of discipleship. A reformation where we know we can do what Jesus did because the spirit that empowered him is here because of our trust in him. He's not here because of earning. The spirit in us wants to do exactly what he did in Jesus when he was on earth in your life. Now, he doesn't want to do Jesus' calling in your life. He wants to do your calling in, in your life. It's just like the day when I said, Lord, what are we going to preach about this next Sunday? And he said, what do you want to preach about? And I said, that makes me uncomfortable. And he said, of course it does. You have a fear of failure. I said, why don't you tell me what to preach about? Because I want to preach about what you would preach about if you were here. He said, I already know what I would preach about. I created you because I wanted to see what you would do. I already got my fingerprints. I want to see the world with your fingerprints. My spirit and your heart expressed by your personality. What's on your heart, Tim? What do you oh. You want me to trust my heart? Isn't my heart deceitful and wicked beyond all cure and who can know it? No, that was the old you. That was the you in Adam. That was the sinful you. That was you in the flesh. That's not you in the spirit. When Jesus said, watch and pray, the body is weak, the spirit is willing, therefore watch and pray so that you might not fall in the time of temptation. What he meant was, through depending on and following that nature that he put in you, your spirit, through realigning the parts of you so that you no longer follow the animal nature in you, the passion, the, 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 just the eager, me, 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 by following the spirit in you instead of that part of you, the other parts of you line up and the body, which is not evil, it's just ignorant, Amen. 
It's just not meant to be in charge. And if you let your body lead your life, it will lead to a destructive life and it will not be a blessed life. But if your body is put into submission to the spirit in you, then suddenly your body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit where the will of God is manifest on on earth and you begin to bear the fruit of the kingdom in your life. So nothing is earned. You don't get to take credit for what the Lord does through you. So like Jesus said, apart from my father, well, he said it this way, on my own, I can do nothing. And then he said to us, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do. But are you apart from him? If you trust him, if you look to him, if you depend on him, if his spirit dwells and seals you, dwells in, seals, doesn't leave, doesn't leave, If you are led by the Spirit, then you are the, it's Romans 8, but those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. There's a righteousness that the scribes and the Pharisees produced, and it's an external righteousness. Are you in pain? Okay, bless her, Jesus. I'll check in on you throughout, okay? There's a righteousness, and, and pray for her. Yeah, you, go, you guys go right ahead. I'll just keep right on talking. There's a righteousness of the Bible teachers of Jesus' day that he called the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And what it is, is it's a law-keeping thing. It's an external, it's, it's, I'm gonna, it doesn't matter what I want, it doesn't matter what I love, all that matters is that I keep the rule. All that matters is I just keep the rule. And this creates people who have to think really hard about what to do when presented with a problem. People who look at this, people who look at the dude who got beat up on the side of the road. Jesus, remember this, this story of Jesus? They look at the guy on the side of the road and he's all beat up and instead of just doing what comes naturally, which is help him, They have to think really hard about whether or not it's okay with the law for them to help him. Pharisee righteousness always has you asking questions like, is that biblical? Is that biblical? Is that biblical? If you have to think really hard about what to do next, that's a a Pharisee righteousness. Jesus doesn't have to think really hard. Jesus comes into church on a Sabbath day and there's a guy whose hand doesn't work right. It's all withered, the Bible says. So he has to ask the question, is it okay for me to heal him on the Sabbath? On the Sabbath, we're not supposed to do any work. If I pray for him for healing, is that work? And those Pharisees said, yeah, that's work and that's not allowed. And so they have to think really hard about whether or not, whether or not it's right or allowed because they don't understand the spirit of the loss. Jesus, understanding the spirit of the law, understands that the point of the Sabbath is to give rest to God's people so they can enjoy fellowship with God. Amen. And that if, they, if he heals the man with the withered hand, he's coming into his rest. 
So Jesus is constantly violating the religious understanding of the Bible, and in the same moment he's breaking the law, he's actually fulfilling the heart behind the law. It's really, really important for us to learn to understand God's ways. Did you know you can't understand God's ways without obedience? There's just a lot of stuff that might not work the way you anticipated it would work. There's just a lot of stuff the human mind and human heart will tell you shouldn't work that way. And the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. When your kids are little and they say why, you can explain, but at some point the explanation stops and you say, because I said so. And unless they learn to obey you, they will not learn by experience the loving wisdom behind your commands. And it works that way with God. Unless we learn to obey God in practice, we will never begin to, to comprehend the design that Jesus is the happiest person who ever lived, that Jesus is the most blessed person who ever lived, and his Sermon on the Mount is the easiest way to live. And his Sermon on the Mount, by the way, is not Old Covenant. His Sermon on the Mount is life in the kingdom. And it's inaugurated when, he's rise, when he rises from the dead. But he is the presence of the kingdom. He is the new covenant in advance. And his teaching is new covenant kingdom of God reality. He is the model of what new covenant kingdom living looks like. That one we get messed up too. We think that's Old Testament living. No. New covenant living fulfills the law and the prophets because it is ruled by love. And love is the essence of God's nature. And therefore, everything, every command God gives comes from his heart of love. The Sermon on the Mount is not the hard way to live. It's the easy way to live. Now, it's hard if you pursue it at the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. With an untransformed Old Testament heart, unrenewed heart, it'll be impossible for you. I feel like I've covered just about six chapters in that last paragraph. It'll be impossible for you to keep the teaching of Jesus with the old stony heart. You have to come into a new covenant understanding of the Father and your relationship with the Father and, be, and let his love come home and really depend and rely on it. Receive it. Swim in it. And give up the whole system of earning and, and rule keeping. Or you won't be changed enough so that love won't come inside you. And when you're confronted with a situation in life, Jesus' teachings won't make sense to you. You'll have to bite your lip and force yourself to obey the letter of his law. So to transcend the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you actually have to become a different kind of person. And to become a different kind of person, we get right back to Martin Luther, sitting there with the Bible, realizing it's a gift. It's a gift. I keep puzzling and puzzling until my puzzler was sore, little Grinchy activity. Little Dr. Susie and Grinchy activity. And he puzzled and puzzed. Till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch had a thought he hadn't thought before. What if Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store? So I'll stop with that. What's the next line, though? <laughs> and the Grinch's heart grew. 
Our righteousness to enter the kingdom has to be different than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. To answer the question, what is a blessed life? Well, anyone who is in the kingdom of God is living a blessed life. If you're in the kingdom of God, you're blessed. I don't care what your bank account says. I don't care what your body says. I don't care what your family says. I don't care what your emotions say. If you're in the kingdom of God, you are a blessed. You are a blessed person. Ephesians 1.3, every spiritual blessing has been given to you in Christ. So if you're in Christ, every spiritual blessing is yours. Now the question is, how much can we participate with grace? See, that's it. That's it. Grace is not meant to be a theory that we bank on to get to heaven later. It's meant to be a reality we engage with to bring heaven to earth now. I'm to live in the kingdom of God now. The church is meant to be an embassy that manifests heaven in advance. We are a time traveler situation. Heaven in advance. Jesus lived from, you know the Old Testament concept of the year of Jubilee? Every seven years, there was a certain level of freedom that was restored from the debts accumulated. But every 50 years, everything went back to the covenant. A massive wipe the whole computer, reinstall the operating system. We start over from scratch. Why did you even click on that in the first place? It doesn't matter. It's all gone now. It's free. We're we're back. And Jesus, when he came, he kind of declared permanent jubilee. To be in Jesus is to be in a state of permanent jubilee. That, study that out, guys. Study that out. Because when he came, Jesus came, the very first sermon he preached in Luke chapter 4 is, the spirit of the sovereign Lord, Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news, freedom, recovery of sight, healing, broken hearts, those in jail get, all right? Then he says this, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's jubilee. That means everything you lost, everything that was done to you and everything you, everything you did wrong and everything done to you is erased and things all go back the way that God intended. Did you know forgiveness of sins is why the body gets healed? He's not holding your sins against you. He's, he's, he's making it as though you've never sinned. And Jesus always prioritized the forgiveness over the healing, but the healing was the same manifestation of his grace and his kingdom as the forgiveness was. Am I making sense? Yes. So grace, it is unmerited favor, yes, but let's get more definition. Grace is the operative power of God that comes into your life and enables you to walk in his ways. Of course, it's also everything else, isn't it? It's your toothbrush and it's the air you breathe and it's the bed you slept in last night and it's the food you have and it's the people who are supporting you in your life and it's your heart continuing to beat and it's the physical molecules that make up your body and the floor and the ceiling and the air and everything and the endless star systems. This whole universe, by the way, is bonus time. The whole universe is grace. It didn't need to exist. 
It didn't, it didn't have to exist. Going back to answer the reality question, what is real? Well, the Christian answers the question, what is real? With ultimate reality is an eternal spirit who is perfect in all his ways, loving to the core, all-powerful, all-knowing, and perfectly loving. That's ultimate reality. And then out of that invisible, eternal, spiritual reality came physical reality and all the different beings and creatures and things that came next. Or Hebrews says it this way, by faith we understand that things visible came from invisible things, not the other way around. And so if Jesus is Lord of all of this and he graciously gave all of this and, and made people in his image and likeness with value and dignity, what kind of value and dignity you ask? I'm glad you asked. Value and dignity that he would say, I didn't create you to be my little servants or my little slaves like the pagan literature at the same time of the creation narrative of Israel. Sometime if you want to be like, what? Read a bunch of the ancient Near Eastern creation narratives. It's like a murder soap opera mystery of affairs and murder and adultery and sexual infidelity and craziness. And humans were made as slaves, and then we made too much noise, so they sometimes throw plagues and things on us. And it's like the best that humans could do is to try to stay out of, out of the God's ways. Like, and, and the gods were all local. Oh, that God lives on that mountain. That's where we go meet him. This God is the God of the rivers. Oh, this is the God of the plains. And it's so easy for us modern folks to be like, oh, that's so pre-scientific and, and kind of look down on ancient people. But I hope COVID has taught us that we are basically primitive tribal beings ready to take up pitchforks real quickly and believe craziness. I, if it, has it taught you that? <laughs> I've kind of unplugged from Twitter and I've, uh, I don't know why Facebook scares me less than Twitter. It switched a few years ago. I would have said the opposite. Uh, there's too many pitchforks on there. I just don't, I don't know if I can handle it. I've gone back to being ignorant. Ignorance is just, I'm going to stay in my life and pray and love the people physically in front of me. But what is real? What is real? God is ultimate reality and everyone's made in his image with value, with value and dignity. That's real. Now, how do we navigate reality? That's the next question. Who do you trust to help you navigate reality? God. Well, you would have to find somebody who you actually look at and say, they get it. And my argument, you already know, is that Jesus is the smartest person who ever lived. Amen. And that if you don't think that, you'll start to follow the teachings of someone you do think is smarter than him or cooler than him. Like if you're a teenager, I don't know who the latest pop stars are. But little girls used to, back when I was younger, used to like idolize Lady Gaga and uh, what's her name? Does she still exist? she still wear meat as, a, as clothing? You remember that? Remember when she wore, like, steak? She wore steak as a clothing. I'm like, she, nowadays, if she tried to pull that, those vegans would be all over her, canceling her, like, Phew. they'd be like, white on rice? No, I can't say that either nowadays. That's racist against Asians. I better get off that train. 
but who you think of as, wow, they've, they're really cool. They, they're, they're living the good life. Wow, I want to be like them. Then you buy their shoes and their clothes and you listen to their music and you try to figure out how to copy them because you want to have the good life like they have the good life. I'm serious, isn't it? Am I right? The people you think of as having the good life are the people you, I want the good life. I want to live it that way. And I'm trying to say, guys, Jesus, live the good life. He, and his teachings are the clue into how you too can live the good life. Now, it's not three easy steps and guaranteed results by Friday. It's take up your cross and follow me and be real, willing to learn. Because who is a really good person? That's the third question, right? What is real? What's the good life? And who's a really good person? Who is a really good person, you guys? Now, what made Jesus a really good person, Carl? He's holy. Well, human, yes, but he's more than human. And we say God is love. Let me tell you who, who's a really good person. A person whose life is saturated, dominated, controlled, led by love. You know this already in your bones. You know this in your bones. When you see people at war and one person lays their, their weapons down and forgives those who killed their family, you look at that and you say, that's impossible. And you say, I think, first off, how? And then you say, that's holy. Even if you, no God was mentioned, you know intuitively in your bones, that's holy. Because that's love. And most of us, if we're honest, have plenty of little excuses for why that's not good in our situation to do. So it's not three easy steps to, to becoming a good person. No, no, no. It's take up your cross and die to everything the world has taught you. And after a while, the grace that's here will get deeper and deeper into you. But it will only get as deep as your will allows. Amen. See, godliness will never, never fall on you during revival services. It's not going to happen. I like revival. I happen to think the fact that we need revival means we lack something more important than revival. Because Jesus didn't talk about revival, neither did Paul or Peter or John. We talk about it because we don't seem to practice the simple things that were the main things they talked about. Did you hear me being anti-revival? Because I'm not. I'm saying the reason we need revival is because of a lack of discipleship. Yeah. And what do you mean by discipleship? I mean becoming a student of Jesus, learning from obeying Jesus in relationship with him, how to walk God's paths. And when that happens, see, if without the exercise of your will, his truth doesn't get deep enough into you. Coming to church Godliness is never going to land on you. Freedom from porn or freedom from the love of money or having a patient heart, learning to be faithful when others sin against you. It's not going to land on you because I laid my hands on you. The grace is already here before I lay my hands on you. But your will, your will, walking in the path of obedience to Jesus over time will allow that grace to saturate deeply enough into the center of who you are that it changes who you have become. What you most want right now is a byproduct of who you have chosen to become up to now. I'm not offering quick fixes. I'm offering a brand new life. 
You can walk as Jesus walked. Either it's, I mean, so many times in the book. His way is the easy way to live. Love your enemies, forgive those, is the easy way to live. One day, I was sitting on the couch late at night, and Jesus looked over at me, and I looked over at him, and he took his hand, and he said, Tim, I'd like to take you inside my heart and show you the amazing reality of what happens when love is all there is. What he meant is, because my only motive is love, I don't struggle with all kinds of things you struggle with. Because my motive is love, because my will is only love. I'm free of all sorts of things. When it says God cannot be tempted with evil, what does that mean? It means he is love. He doesn't have to bite his lip and force himself to be nice. Ever. He's kind. I, I like to distinguish between being nice and being kind. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's so loving that even when he gets angry, the only time he gets angry is when mercy would be the unloving response. He's patient until the point when patience becomes unloving, which is why it says he's slow to anger. Okay, back to the beginning. The offer is here right now today. Forgiveness, free. Sonship, daughtership in the kingdom of God, free. His Holy Spirit, the same spirit that raised him from the dead, offered to you, free. Who gets it, guys? Everyone who trusts Jesus. The question is, what will you then do with that grace? If you do nothing, it won't change you. If you enter with Jesus into the school of obedience, it will radically transform you and you will become a truly blessed, good person. And it won't be you powering it. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you do nothing, it will be apart from me. I don't know when we got allergic to obedience. When we started to think of obedience as legalism. Legalism is a dead end. Obedience is a great way to go. I think that's enough for today. It's an awesome time to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to walk in his footsteps, to forgive and to love, to have that joy. I know through my lifetime I've had to give up some things that I held on to. And so I just feel a call. This past week I had a songs that reminded me of that invitation of come home. Jesus is calling softly and tenderly to come home. To come home. Just as I am without one plea. Yeah. So I'm just inviting that anyone, anyone who's struggling or has a hard time letting something go. 
I'm not saying that you are lost. It's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying I know through my life I've had to let some things go. In fact, last week I had one encounter where the Holy Spirit asked me to let go of something. I said, okay. I cried. I said, I'm sorry. And so I'm offering that this morning. And I know... I don't know, this past week I was thinking about, I didn't even know I was going to be up here until this morning. (laughs) But uh, sometimes there's things that you don't really want to share and have someone here. I'm going to offer to stand back by the office if you want someone to pray with you in private. I'd be glad to do that. I want to be open to that. I really do. I want to be sincere about that. So, Father, I bless the house with your Aaronic blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious. May his countenance be upon you and give you peace.